You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's great to be here with all of you. I am very excited and honored to welcome to the show today Yasmin Gramian. Yasmin is the Secretary of the Department of Transportation for the state of Pennsylvania, and she is joining us here from Philadelphia. Yasmin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sue. Great to be with you today. Very nice to have you, especially um, at what I know is a very, very busy time for you and and your colleagues. Um, what I'd like to do, as we always do on the show, is start with your background and give the listeners a, a sense of who you are and where you came from. And uh, one of the most important pieces is that you were born in Iran and came to the U.S. for your education. Um, by yourself, by the way, and uh, your parents were not able to join you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, how that came to be? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Sue, uh, I was born in Tehran, Iran. I'm the youngest of three with two older brothers. I grew up in Tehran. I attended a bilingual elementary school uh, and with the second language obviously being English. Uh, later, I attended an all-girls high school, and I was enrolled in what was known at the time a math program and now known as a STEM program today. Uh, I came to United States for my higher education and did my undergraduate and graduated at the University of Michigan. Uh, emphasis on education was generational in our family. Study abroad was also a, genera a generational trend in our family. It started with my grandfather who had eight children, three girls and five boys, and all went to England uh, to receive their higher education. And that included my mom, who was the eldest, uh, traveled to London 75 years ago, Sue, uh, and she was 18 at the time. Wow. To London, yes, to pursue her interest, which at the time was fashion design. She went to, she attended the Fashion School of Design. And education abroad, had two benefits. 
uh, the way I look at it today, and we're all seeing it actually, it's, it's becoming so common in the United States. The education you receive, first of all, and the technical skills or all the skills that you learn, but above and beyond everything else is the exposure you get to a different culture, different language, people, food, and just the way of living. Um, my grandfather believed back then that you needed to get uh, both, and you need to get out of your bubble to grow and think, uh, think that uh, that thinking was actually instilled in all of us, in my parents, and I kind of uh, raised my children the same way too. You know, it's interesting to me because it's fairly common for folks to come from other countries, to come to the U.S. for an education. And when it was time for you to do that, how were you feeling? Was it a scary for you or is it this is what my next step is? This is what I'm meant to do. Yeah, it, it was I have to say I wasn't scared. I was very excited. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, it was a new thing to me. Uh, but when you're 17, and I was 17 when I came to this country, uh, there is a lot of things that you don't know. And it's a good thing that you don't know. You don't know what you're going to get yourself into, you know, the new environment. It all sounds exciting when you're young. Yes. Obviously, it came with some of its own challenges, being in a new environment. It took a while for me um, to get acclimated. Very different from... Uh, where I grew up, very different from the education system that I was exposed to. Uh, as I said, you know, after, for my high school, I attended an all-girls high school. Mm -hmm. And when I came to United States and went to University of Michigan doing engineering program, uh, I was like one of the very few women in the classroom. So I definitely, that was a time, Sue, that I felt the meaning of the word minority. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and up to that day, I, I, I really didn't, um, couldn't understand when people talk about being in a minority, what that means. Because as I said, I was in an all-girls school. We were all in the STEM program. We were all kind of, you know, uh, pushing forward in the same direction. But um, when I came to U.S., there was a lot of things that I had to get acclimated to. And the fact that, you know, I was different in so many ways. And I was one of the very few women in the classroom and trying to find your space and your spot in that space, I should say. Yeah. Tell me about the influence of your mother. I know, you know, you have stated that she truly was your hero. Tell me about your relationship with her. Yes. Um, yeah, she truly was my hero, as you mentioned. And uh, I think... Uh, first of all, uh, she was a very independent-minded person and very independent person in so many ways, but at the same time, so much valued the culture that she grew up in and the value system of the Persian culture. Uh, very committed to the family, uh, to her children, but also valued uh, some of the American way of living, you know, um, be able to... Uh, have a job, have a career if she chooses to. And my mother, actually, when I went to, I started elementary school, she started working. She was working prior to getting married uh, to my dad, and she stopped working when she started having children. After I was born and a few years later, she started working as a teacher. And she loved teaching because um, it gave her the flexibility to be with us during summertime. Uh, but also she loved being with young people. 
Um, and she taught for many years, 27 years. And she really valued her relationship interactions with young people. It was both ways for her, she always used to tell me. It's not like she was teaching them, she was learning from them. Uh, she was energized and she was being challenged by the questions and the way of the way they were thinking. So that I feel like it's also something that has been developed in me. I love being among the young people and just having conversations, getting challenged, learning about the millennials and Gen Z and their way of living and the diversity. My mother was the same way. She taught um, for several years and then she retired. Uh, and then she started traveling a little bit more. The thing about my mother was, um, you know, like me, when she was very young, she traveled to an unknown uh, country. You know, mm -hmm. she went to England. Uh, obviously, 75 years ago, that was a long time ago. And she found her way. She, edu she got her education. She made a lot of friends that she stayed connected with them for many, many years. Uh, and, you know... I guess once you go through this process and you accomplish your goals, you learn that, hey, there is nothing that you cannot do. And I, I there were times, uh, Sue, that I would step into a new space, into new challenges. And I was always very concerned uh, on how I'm going to perform. Am I going to do well? Am I going to, uh, you know, accomplish the goals of that job? And she was always behind me. She was the force who always told me, you can do it. You have the skills to do it. You have the personal skills to do it. And later on, as you move up in your career and you took on, you take on more leadership role, you realize that it's not just about your technical skills. It's about all the other skills that you develop throughout your life. Yeah, I, I think it's so important to have a champion, someone who believes in you, who continually reminds you that you can, you know, when you have those doubts. You, you mentioned um, early in the show um, about being one of few women. And I wanted to point out you got your master's and your bachelor's in engineering, civil engineering from the University of Michigan. And at the time, there was only 7% of the workforce were women. That's a very small percent. So, Knowing that, did, were you ever deterred or, or was it kind of an exciting challenge for you to be one of few? I was never deterred. Um, and I, I got into these different phases of life thinking this is the way it's going to be. Okay. I, I realized that I've made a choice and I'm one of the very few. And then when I got into the job, uh, you know, into, into my career and the first job that I had. Again, I was the first female bridge engineer that was hired in that office of the company that I was working for. And the company was a pretty large company. They had offices throughout the country. I got hired by them to work as a bridge engineer uh, entry level in their New Jersey office, uh, the first female bridge engineer. I was surrounded with men. And so by then I kind of got used to being, uh, you know, in a minority or one of the very few or the only. That one was kind of different because I was the only, uh, yeah. but it never deterred me. I welcomed the opportunity um, and I didn't know what to expect, how it's supposed to be. Uh, the difference uh, in the, uh, the way the students are actually being trained 
through the internship programs, to, through the co-op programs, through all these dialogues that we are having with young people, uh, you know, through the STEM, talking to the engineers at school or the people who are interested to become an engineers or uh, take a STEM as, as, a, uh, as a major is there, there's a lot of discussions about what to expect, what opportunities are out there, what channels you can actually develop yourself through, you know, what support system to build, what kind of, the importance of networking. I had no clue. I mean, a lot of these opportunities that exist today did not exist back in the 80s when I joined the workforce. Um, I kind of did it. I walked into it, I did it. And then later on, I learned that, hey, this is a good idea to provide those kind of supports for others who are behind me. But so it's interesting. I want to jump ahead to a question you just reminded me, uh, prompted me to ask. You did not have all of the support. And uh, there's a lot of books today about networking and mentorship and how to be a leader. So you did that without any of those resources. What do you think it is about you? What attributes do you have that allowed uh, someone at this engineering firm, your first job, um, to say you have the ability to, to be the very first woman bridge inspector? That's a big job. Yeah. So there are a number of different things that come into play uh, for anyone to be able to do a good job. First of all, technical skills are important, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why education is, uh, in my opinion, it's, it's so important to get folks ready to choose their career. Education doesn't have to be a graduate, undergraduate degree. Education can be going through trade schools, attending programs. Uh, it could be even internship and also getting educated and um, through and trained through mentorship programs. So there are a lot of opportunities today for getting folks ready for the workforce, uh, you know, at a younger age that kind of was limited back then, or at least to me, it was limited for somebody from a different country, right? And mm -hmm. I always took the path of, we were taught to take the path of education. That's the safest, the quickest, most assured path. Um, by no means, that's not the only way. Um, and today, as you mentioned, there are books on trainings, on leadership program, on emotional intelligence and the importance of it as you want to advance in your career, on uh, you know diversity, equity, inclusion. These are all the programs that are so important uh, for a leader uh, to strengthen their leadership uh, skills. Uh, there, all those things, honestly, I mean, they were like seven secrets of successful business owners. You know, there were different yeah. kinds of textbooks available, available back then. And today it's a different world. Obviously mm -hmm. the, the conversation we're having about the workforce, education, exposure, developing people is, is very different from what we ex, uh, experienced back in the 70s and 80s. So when you have an opportunity to be with a young girl, a young woman um, who's contemplating a field in, in STEM, what do you say to her to um, get her excited about it? In other words, I, I always think of myself when I was young that not having the math numbers, science, part of the brain. Um, I didn't understand that there's a very creative side to science and technology engineering. How do you t share that with young women um, who are, you know, adept at that to encourage them to pursue those jobs? 
So first of all, it has to be something that they're interested in. Okay, I mean, I, I would never push someone to to study something if it if if it doesn't resonate with their interest and you know the way they feel about it. So they have to be interested in it. Um, what one thing that I actually when I talk about my my own personal experience is. Uh, you know, I studied engineering because obviously I liked math, I liked physics, I liked sciences back then. But also, it's it's financially, it's a good, viable choice if that's mm -hmm. important to people. You yes. know, you know, everybody has got different areas of interest. If it's important for you to mm, make good money, have certain things in life, that's a good choice, obviously. Uh, there other areas that you know you can actually impact. I mean, look at what's happening, how maths and physics and science is actually revolutionizing the way we are living, the way we are thinking, the progress that's being made in the world, the space, going to space, or the whole world of Google and Tesla and all the cool gaming and Spotify creating the vaccine. I mean, if that's something that interests you, get into it and bottom line is i think in a way you're creating the future and what better story than having an impact in creating the future for the next generation i agree and and i think what we're seeing now are so many firsts for women we're seeing first time female ceos in corporations first women to go to space you know and you're a first um, you, you shared a picture with me, and I think it spoke so much. It's you at graduation, surrounded by men. And it, the photo made me laugh. All of the men were looking at notes and very serious. I don't know what was happening at that graduation at that moment. You were so fresh-faced, smiling, excited, all alone, that one girl. What were you thinking in that moment? So uh, several things. I mean, obviously, it was a long time ago, Sue, so back in 81. But I remember I was very proud to be sitting in that group. I was very thankful and grateful to my parents to provide me with that opportunity. Um, I was very excited looking into the future. I didn't know what was waiting for me, but I was very excited and ready to step into, you know, what's next. Obviously, that was my undergraduate picture, by the way. Uh, I did stay another year and a half uh, at the University of Michigan to do my graduate work. But even that, I was, I mean, I was just, I did it. That, that was the feeling at the time. I did it. I completed the program. I'm excited to be sitting here. This is a major accomplishment. And look, you know, it's me and all the dudes around. <laughs> <laughs> you should be proud. You should be proud. Um, listen, we're going to go into a break. When we come back, I want to talk about your role as the secretary for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. As we go into our break, I want to give a special thanks to our watch team of on-air contributors for their continued support. Listen today for our military watch with Carol Eggert of Comcast. We'll be back with Yasmin in just a moment. Now, the Women to Watch, Military Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. This Thursday, March 3rd, the Navy Reserve celebrates its 107th birthday. 
Formed in 1915 at the outbreak of World War I, the Navy Reserve continues to proudly live up to its motto of honor, courage, and commitment. These words, these values that each sailor must live up to, also have a special link to Women's History Month and the advancement of equality within the military. In 1942, the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, or the WAVES, became a division of the U.S. Navy Reserve. This force opened opportunities for women to serve in several fields, including aviation, medical professions, communications, intelligence, and science and technology. However, the WAVES remained closed to black women. It wasn't until 1944, and after urging from civic, religious, and civil rights organizations, that the U.S. Navy permitted black women to join the WAVES. Soon after, Harriet Ida Pickens and Frances Wills graduated from the Navy Reserve Midshipman School and became the U.S. Navy's first black female officers. Pickens was the daughter of William Pickens, one of the founders of the NAACP, who encouraged her to join the waves. She would go on to lead physical fitness training at the Hunter Naval Training Station. And Wills, a social worker, who didn't have a brother to serve in the military, she felt that it was her duty to represent her family and contribute to the war effort. Wills would go on to teach naval history to incoming recruits and then she returned to her social work counseling veterans who were struggling with the horrors of war. These women exemplified the epitome of honor, courage, and commitment. Their willingness to dive into so many unknowns for the greater purpose of service to others is so inspiring. So thank you to Ida, thank you to Harriet, and happy birthday to the Navy Reserve. Women to watch. Watch. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker and you are listening to Sports Watch. Losing is a part of life and it is hard for all of us to get over it, right? Like nobody wants to say, you know what, I'm going to go in this today and I'm going to take the L, right? Like I am going to not give my best effort and I really hope that I lose, right? Nobody does that. And there's a reason why, because we want to we, we are taught, we are trained to go for the gold, to win, to be that person who sets the example. And yet, when we talk about mental toughness, mental toughness is actually the ability to be present, to focus on what's in your control, and to move on to the next decision, not focusing on the past. How many plays as an athlete, for example, do you lose to a bad play or a bad call, right? We're all going to have, we're, we're going to miss tackle, for example, right? Like I'm a linebacker. I'm supposed to tackle people. There are going to be times when I miss that tackle. However, do I miss the next three plays because I missed that tackle or do I come back and make the next play? So it's about focus forward, focus present. And what do I need to do right now in this play on this day to win? And that may have been, you know, uh, a result of, not winning the last day. If we're so focused in the past, it's really hard to be present, right? You can't do both. We cannot live in our rear view mirror. So what did you take from what took you down? And how are you going to take that into the next play that you make so that your likelihood of a win is a lot greater because you took an L? 
follow me and all my adventures, or you can say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back to the show. I am speaking with Yasmin Gramian today, the secretary for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. And I wanted to open uh, this part of the show with the fact that you were um, unanimously nominated for this role by the Senate in 2020 in the middle of a global pandemic. How scary was that to step into a role um, when the entire world was was going through such a crisis? Yeah. So, uh, Sue, if you recall, I I said earlier today that um, I was 17 when I came to this country and I didn't know what to expect. And uh, actually, my old country went through a turmoil and a revolution. And uh, for five years, uh, I wasn't able to see my parents and I was kind of on my own. And there were some a lot of uh, concerns, ambiguity, uh, insecurity um, about my uh, position uh, in uh, Michigan and whether I can continue with my education. And I did it and I did it, but it put me in a better place. So uh, I came to PennDOT and, uh, you know, I... I didn't know what to expect, kind of similar. I was there to do a job and then the pandemic happened. And that is something completely unfamiliar to all of us. And basically, I think what happens when you get into a crisis is when you put your, um, when your soft skills come into play and help you. Obviously, you need to have technical skills to an extent to make certain decisions. But what's really important is your soft skills, is how you interact with people, how do you do with building the team and making a decision. You need to listen to folks and understand the challenges in all areas. Um, And, you know, as I said, how to leverage all the resources, how to be creative and innovative, how to be flexible. You know, there are so many things that come into play when you get into a situation which is completely unknown. Obviously, for me, it was baptism by fire being in that position during pandemic. We were on the calls every day, 12 hours, 14 hours. A lot of it was educational for me because for us as a team to make a decision, we we had to sort of do a whole round of evaluations of the circumstances, whether it was our maintenance work and protecting the maintenance workers to do their work during pandemic, or it was the construction projects and opening the construction projects and construction sites while maintaining safety, whether it's our driver vehicle services and how to open them up and make sure that our employees and the people who are coming in to get uh, the documents and the services they need, they're safe. Everything, obviously, the core of every decision we made was around safety, Mm. but also, you know, making sure team is coming in with their suggestions. It was truly a teamwork and empowering people to come in and focus on a solution. And at the end of the day, making the best decision for the public and also for our own employees. I would imagine the ability to be able to pivot. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. 
Well, anyways, I was calling Kern because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try right, without being overly reactionary is extremely important. Something I wanted to talk to you about, you manage an enormous budget, $9.5 billion. I want to know what your negotiation skills are. How do you approach um, when you have to constantly decide where the budget should go? What, where is it allotted? And what, what is your negotiation style um, when trying to work with colleagues and employees? So um, fortunately, with the budget, uh, the, the money that we receive uh, for our budget is pretty uh, straightforward and it's decided based on formula. So there is like uh, you know, the highway bridge program at PennDOT is being funded from the motor license fund, 78% of it, and, you know, another 10% from other sources. So it's pretty straightforward on how much money comes in and where it gets distributed, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, for public transit, it's the same thing. There are several sources of funding that come through PennDOT, and it gets distributed uh, to public transit. There are different buckets of uh, distribution on where the money goes and how we send it out to different public transit agencies, the smaller ones, as well as the larger ones in the urban areas. So it's pretty straightforward. There is also some money that we have to, by law, by statute, give to other agencies and support other agencies. We're also supporting Pennsylvania State Police to the tune of $500 million. So distributing the money is pretty straightforward. How much it comes in, again, it's the revenue we collect from multiple sources. Public transit receives some money from the general funds, and general funds is where you get money from, you know, different kinds of tax and sources of revenue. And a motor license fund is pretty straightforward. For every uh, gallon of gas that, you know, the drivers put in their car, uh, we, PennDOT receives 57.5 cents on tax, for the motor license fund. And that 57.5 cents, as I mentioned, it gets distributed into different buckets. So there is no field over that. We know mm -hmm. where it's gonna go. It, it, it's being decided by, uh, it's a collaboration process between 
PennDOT and Department uh, of Revenue. They forecasted the revenue and we distribute the revenue into different buckets. What's challenging and what requires um, skills from us and the entire PennDOT team is when there is not enough revenue, okay, mm -hmm. put into the assets and, you know, the revenue is short of the actual need, what do you do in that case? Uh, because at the end of the day, we are responsible for um, 25,400 bridges throughout the states. We are responsible for over 40,000 miles of highways. We are responsible to provide funding for the locals to be invested into their infrastructure. What do we, what do, we do in that case? Those are the challenging times for uh, folks at the helm of an agency working with the team to develop new programs. Developing a new program, always it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's got pros and cons. The pros is obviously you're developing a new program because it's generating a new source of revenue or way of doing things, innovation. But you know it's also challenging to educate the public. Uh, I have to say, so one of the toughest job anybody has in, in a working for a public agency is to be able to communicate well with the public, educate the public about why they're doing things the way they're doing and why they should be doing things differently. In, um, introducing new ideas requires a lot of work on the education side. They have to see the benefit of it, to buy into it. Right. And that is going to be the challenge. And so, you know, there is a lot of work that goes into the communication part to mm -hmm. persuade the public and the public officials, I should say. Yes. Um, and that's where, you know, the skills come into play. Yeah. You know, I I agree with you. I, I learned so much myself in preparing for this interview, statistics about infrastructure and the bridges and and where we are um, as a state in relation to the rest of the country. And, um, you know, for the the public, it's a little unnerving to to know that the bridges are in such poor condition, twenty five hundred bridges um, and the average age of a bridge is 50 years and we're approaching 75. These are just a couple of facts that a lot of the public do not know. Um, can you share with us something that, that is a current project that would kind of ease our anxiety around infrastructure in general that's taking place that you're excited about? Well, I think the, the, the biggest um, excitement is around the, the federal funding that we are receiving under the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure uh, law that was just passed. Uh, it was signed into law in November by President Biden. It's the first time since 1993 that the federal government is increasing or, or adding funding into infrastructure uh, and transportation. Last time we received a substantial increase in transportation was back in 1993. And it, it's been almost, what, a uh, long time. Okay. Why, why did it take so Why do you think it took so long for something so, you know, it is safety? It is safety. Every administration talked about it. Every administration emphasized the importance of investing into infrastructure. Uh, but nobody took any... A substantial step to address this issue. So we do receive some funding. A big portion of our funding comes from the federal government and 
you know, some of the funding comes from at the state level. Uh, and as I said, they didn't want to make a choice. They talked about it, but it was always the same level of funding. Uh, under uh, President um, Obama, he introduced a small infusion of funding under the stimulus package into transportation. Yes, it did help a little bit, just a little bit, but it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you know, Pennsylvania is an old state with an old infrastructure, and it's a big state. Uh, as you mentioned, majority of the bridges um, are 50 years old or even older. We've, as we get money, we try to invest into the bridges and the infrastructure and the highways to upgrade them, but there is never enough money. We built them back in the 1950s and 60s under Eisenhower regime, but then since then, there hasn't really been a substantial amount of investment into infrastructure. So we, we actually reap the benefit of it. We need to invest more into the transportation. Nobody wants to pay. Everybody wants a good, safe, reliable, accessible transportation system, but nobody really wants to pay extra, whether it's at your uh, gas uh, pump or it's through other means. Pennsylvania has got a different challenge compared to some of the other states is that as I mentioned, 78% of the funding for our highways and bridges is from the gas tax, okay? A lot of other states have different sources of revenue for their highway bridges. We are actually relying up to 78%. Gas tax, as you know, the cars are becoming more efficient. We are seeing more electric vehicles on the road, more hybrid vehicles on the road. People have chosen to do hybrid lifestyle work from home, telework, the revenue on the gas tax is going down, infrastructure is getting older. So the good news going back to what you said, exciting news is we finally are getting a surge of funding and money being put into transportation systems and infrastructure. Pennsylvania is receiving an additional $4 billion for the highway and bridge program, and it's wonderful. But the other thing I have to say, uh, not to burst any bubble here, we really need eight billion on an annual basis to respond to the needs that we have. Well, you know, we hear these big numbers so often and we think that's plenty of money. And for these kinds of projects, it never is. It's it never is because it's a diverse state. It's a large state. We've got a lot of miles of highways that we need to maintain. We've got many bridges that we need to maintain. And you know, there are multiple programs that we have to introduce to be able to, as a minimum, address the safety of the needs of the infrastructure. We cannot address all the needs that we have at once, but we gradually have to take a bite out of this, you know, big elephant. As we go into our break, I want to give a special thanks to our watch team of on-air contributors for their continued support. We'll be back with Yasmin in just a moment. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Finding your brand's purpose. Hi there, my name is Diana Barnes, or DB as most people call me, and I'm the Chief Brand Officer and Creative Director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand for over 30 years. We know that companies who give back to causes that are important to their consumers tend to grow faster, have increased brand loyalty, and attract top-tier talent. But what if your company's corporate giving is fragmented or non-existent? The former was the case when I joined Munchkin seven years ago. The company made donations to organizations, but there wasn't a strategic approach to its giving efforts. 
Sometimes a company's choice for philanthropic support, commonly referred to as CSR or corporate social responsibility, is evident. A shoe company donates sneakers to children in need, for example. At Munchkin, we leaned into less obvious choices. Just like the parents that use our products, we're concerned now more than ever about the world we're leaving to our children. Ensuring that at-risk and endangered animals survive for future generations is a primary pillar of our CSR. Our product line, Wild Love, infuses our devotion to animal welfare with our most successful products, our 360 Miracle Cups. The line is solely focused on educating families about these at-risk species and supports our biannual donations to the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Our philanthropic efforts also support Trees for the Future and the building of the world's first whale and dolphin safe haven through the Whale Sanctuary Project. We make these contributions because it's important to our founder, our employees, and our consumers. When I tell people where I work, they either recognize our brand from our most popular product, the No Spill 360 Cup, or they know us as the baby brand that cares about animals. Either is a win-win in my book. When it comes to defining CSR efforts for your company, don't be afraid to look beyond the obvious places or ways to give. Commit to a cause and to ongoing long-term donations. Find reputable organizations to give to by searching on GuideStar or Charity Navigator. Get your employees involved with volunteer opportunities and share milestones and accomplishments with your consumers. After all, they're the ones that make the giving possible. To learn more about all of Munchkin's CSR work, please visit us at munchkin.com. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. When people hear that I'm a GI doctor, they often run the other way. Because yes, I perform colonoscopy. But that's a good thing, because colorectal cancer is common, often deadly, but usually preventable. For many years, the initial screening age was 50. Colon cancer seemed to begin when people were in their mid-50s, so we start at 50, find and remove small benign polyps, and prevent cancer. More recently, two major developments. One, studies show that African Americans are 20% more likely to be diagnosed with colon cancer and 40% more likely to die from it at a younger age. And marked increase in cases in young people, even under age 40. So, official age to start screening has been lowered from 50 to age 45. Repeat, start colon cancer screening at age 45 in people without symptoms. If you have symptoms, regardless of age, see your doctor for appropriate testing. It's not normal to have rectal bleeding, unexplained weight loss, belly pain, or change of bowel habits. Two, if you have a family history of colon cancer or even just benign polyps, you may need to start at age 40, maybe younger. That's family history of colon polyps or cancer. Help share the important message that screening saves lives. Join the Blue Lights campaign. Look at the Philly skyline this week in March. 30 buildings will shine in blue. Pico, Sierra, one and two Liberty Place, BNY Mellon, Boathouse Row, Ben Franklin Bridge, and this year, every state capital in blue during March. Put a strand of blue lights on the door of your home or business, a blue light bulb on your porch. Send a photo of your blue lights to info at bluelightscampaign.com. A special thank you to our host, Sue Rocco. I was the first member to join the watch team four years ago, and this is my last Health Watch segment. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned some helpful information. Join me each Saturday evening at 5 o'clock here on WPHT for Your Radio Doctor, the only medical show in Philly, because your health is your wealth. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. 
Welcome back to the show. I am speaking with Yasmin Gramian today, the secretary for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. There's such an, an enormous amount of areas that you're involved in in your role as secretary uh, for the Department of Transportation. Human trafficking is a topic. It's come up on this show a lot and and sadly is so much more prevalent than than the public realizes. And I wanted to ask you if there's any role that PennDOT is playing to combat that. PennDOT is very engaged uh, as much as they could as an agency. Uh, Obviously, um, you know, one thing that we can influence is awareness and awareness of uh, the PennDOT employees of this challenge. And what we've done is every person who is working at the driver vehicle services have received the training on these challenges regarding human trafficking and looking for signs where um, there is a victim, you know, at one of these centers. As you know, driver vehicle services is the most uh, public um, encounter part of PennDOT, right? The folks who are there, they see people who coming in whether it's for their ID or driver's license or their registrations or whatever. And the folks who are working there always, they've been trained to look for any signs that could potentially be an indication that a person who's walking in is scared or is a victim. Also at the rest areas, that's another location that you know the folks who are working there have been trained to look for signs. As you know, Sue, a lot of times the victims, they... They use sign language to send a message to the public, whether they're in the car or they're in a restaurant, they find a way to send a message uh, that, you know, uh, they're being enslaved by the person who is actually, um, you know, is performing this human trafficking. And we are training folks to look for those signs, to be more vigilant, to pay more attention to the details. Um, there's literature that's being distributed at PennDOT. There are signs posted at different vehicle services and rest areas, you know, that you have to, you have ways. Don't think that, you know, people are not watching. We'll take care of you. Just make sure that there is a way you can communicate and there are ways that we can support you. And, you know, there are corridors that have been identified where we are posting the sign. So there's a lot of programs that we, we put in place in collaboration with, the trucking industry, with universities, with multiple different organizations who are very engaged to address this human trafficking. It's good to he- good to know and good to hear um, that because it, it again it, it it's something that I think very few people realize how prevalent it is. Um, Yasmin, I want to ask you. You know, again, your job um, requires a lot of responsibility. There's a lot to worry about when things don't go right. What is it that you turn to during stressful times? Um, How do you manage anxiety? Are you a spiritual person? Do you have a daily mantra? What do you go to uh, to ease your mind? So uh, that's a great question. Uh, Obviously, uh, yes, I am a spiritual person. Um, I do meditate. Uh, I, I do my yoga. Uh, I uh, sometimes write, uh, you know, what I'm thinking uh, to sort of clear my head. Um, 
and you know dialogue with uh, my mentors my friends the folks in the industry it's also very helpful uh, for me to <laughs> reduce my anxiety sometimes about any uh, you know uh, unknown challenges uh, like during COVID uh, something that was very helpful is uh, communications with my peers in other states just to see you know exchange notes on uh, how they're dealing with the challenges. So uh, I am not shy to use the resources that I have and ask questions. Um, I know I don't have the answers to everything. And sometimes I uh, put my hands up and reach up uh, for help. And sometimes I call for help. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times to calm my nerves is I realize that I have to, the best thing for me is really exercising and yeah. doing my yoga and that's a big stress reliever for me it's always been and i wish I, I would do more but you know this virtual work doesn't help because you sit and you work for hours and hours and hours and but that yeah those are the sources of uh, relief for me you know when we talk about um kind of this arena of women's leadership and empowerment i always like to ask my guests the why uh, it matters. So in other words, when you think of the world and all its social problems, why do we need more women in positions of leadership? Why do we need more CEOs, women on boards, um, women in science and technology? It's a great question. And it goes back to the issue of uh, diversity. First of all, uh, I truly believe women think differently than men do. They act differently than men do. It's a different perspective. Um, you know, big percentage of the population are women. And so you, you have to be it to understand it. Uh, and that's why it's so important. If we wanted to uh, respond to the needs of 50 plus percentage of the population, it's important to have that group at every level. Leadership obviously is very important because leadership, um, they set the trend, they set the dialogue, they set the tone, uh, they set the laws, they set the expectations, uh, awareness, everything. You bring in a new perspective, uh, whereas when the women are not in that role and the decision is being made, by folks who never experienced some of the challenges that women have experienced, those challenges are gonna stay. It's not gonna go away. This is a society, we're in a society, or all societies, they all do better when everybody thrives and everybody feels they belong to that society. If they feel they are being neglected, they don't have a voice, they're not being counted, they don't, they're not included, they're not being respected, Okay, uh, I don't think we're all going to do well as a society. We all race together. That's my philosophy in life. You know, if you go up and you leave some people down, ultimately those people who are down, they're going to take you down. We got to make sure we all race together and address the needs of everyone. That's why it's so important to have women in a leadership position to understand and to promote and to encourage more women to grow in a in in uh, in an organization or into whatever they want to be also i have to say for myself 
Um, so I, I mentioned to you, I never thought I was going to become a secretary for Department of Transportation or be a cabinet member. Uh, and, you know, life took me to that direction. Yeah. But the fact that there were women in that position ahead of me, and they were my advocate, actually, you know, obviously they saw something in me and they thought that she can do the job. Okay. I think that had something to do with me being in this position. And with me being in this position is going to have a lot to do with making sure that we have women in a senior leadership position at PennDOT and other organizations that I get engaged in. It's not just PennDOT. I have become a voice because I can influence right now. We have mm -hmm. a, we are dealing with the contractors, we are dealing with consultants, and I can influence that world that where is your diversity? What are you doing to include everyone, to make mm -hmm. everyone feel belong to your organization? Is that your mission outside of your position with PennDOT? Is that where you spend most of your time and energy? Well, it's, it is my mission. Right now, most of my time and energy is actually spent at PennDOT, but it is my mission. Whenever I get a chance and I talk to uh, the folks who are actually doing business or private or business partners, I should say, uh, I do emphasize and encourage them to come back to me and tell me what their plans are. How are they actually impacting uh, the, the world of diversity, whether through their own organization or partnership with the smaller companies? What are, what are the programs that you're introducing to make sure that the investment that PennDOT is doing is actually benefiting everyone? And I do think, um, you know, naturally the world is becoming more diverse and will continue to. It might not be at the rate that people want, um, but I think at some point it will be inevitable simply because where you've become so global yeah. and, and, you know, people are meeting people from all different countries and uh, people are marrying people from different faiths and different races and ethnicities. And it, it, it's going to happen. Right. I mean, if you if we want to create a homogeneous environment, it, it's like putting a bubble around you. And this bubble at some point is going to burst. Diversity, friction, uh, differences it is what creates uh, new thinking. It creates innovation. It creates different ways of doing things, uh, making improvements. That's where the good ideas come from, not mm -hmm out of a bubble. I don't see it being done that way. Right. Well, listen, I am so grateful again um, for your taking time to, to share your story, Yasmin, and I'm going to let you get back to it. <laughs> Unless you'd like to stay a little longer and chat with me. Um, but we're going to uh, we're going to say goodbye and and be following your work. And I wish you continued success. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Sue. Greatly appreciate being with you today, sharing my stories. And greatly appreciate, greatly appreciate what you're doing with all the stories on the podcast. I listen to a lot of them and I really enjoy the stories that I learn from other women. Thank you so much for your great work. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned next week for my interview with Lydia Finette, the CEO of Christie's Auction House in New York. Have a great week and stay well. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428.
This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.